In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cammie and Sandy. Hi, this is Cammie. Elizabeth Leamy joins us today on Money Tales. Elizabeth is a nationally known journalist, author, and speaker, best known for her work as the on-air consumer correspondent for Good Morning America. Among many world leaders, she's had the privilege to have an exclusive interview with President Barack Obama, where they covered Wall Street reform, the Consumer Protection Act, and what the Obamas were teaching their daughters about money. Elizabeth shares with us her perspective on saving, spending, and having open money conversations. For over 25 years, Elizabeth has educated Americans on consumer issues such as how to save money, sidestep scams, and keep your family safe. Her work has earned her 13 Emmy Awards and four Edward R. Murrow Awards. Elizabeth is the author of two critically acclaimed books. Her most recent is Save Big, Cut Your Top Five Costs, and Save Thousands. She's a professional speaker and consultant for worthy companies and causes, helping them get their consumer education message across to the public. Hey there, this is Sandy. With her consumer correspondent lens, Elizabeth brings some powerful advice to this conversation. Among other topics, she encourages listeners to avoid sweating the lattes and instead looking for ways to save money on the big expenses in life. She shares ways to avoid scams and ripoffs. Elizabeth also covers ideas for how entrepreneurs and consultants approach valuing their services. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from this discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Elizabeth Leamy. Elizabeth Leamy, welcome to Money Tales. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. To get the conversation going, could you give us a quick overview of your life focusing on two to three pivotal moments that really make you the person you are today? I am a recovering journalist, and for much of my career, I have covered consumer issues and some personal finance, so scams, ripoffs, how to keep your family safe, and that is a big part of my identity. I am a mom and wife to a great guy who is a financial planner, so I've learned a lot from him in regard to money. I was raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, but now live in Washington, D.C., I think that's a good context for the conversation. To go deeper into the money part of our conversation, we've asked guests about what money was like when you were growing up, because we find that those early years and our experience with money and the messages that we get from our parents and other adults as we're growing up really helps form who we are. And we'd love to hear about your experience as a young person. How is money talked about or not in your household? My parents were both architects, which is a field where you tend to not have much money at first. And then if you really stick with it and work hard, you can build a decent living. 
definitely there was a sense that we were always watching our money and I had to earn money if I wanted things. So even at the age of nine, I remember I had a lawn mowing business with a friend from my block and we would show up at people's houses and these dads who had hired us would be mortified because we were so young and scrawny and there we were to mow their lawn. And one time I remember the dad even ended up mowing it for us. We brought one of those push mowers that are just human powered, no gas, no electric, nothing. If I wanted to decorate my room and put up new posters, I had to buy those myself. And if I wanted frames, well, I just couldn't afford that. I remember once I bought plexiglass sheets of plastic to put over my posters to make them look somewhat more official, but then they didn't have pieces that were big enough for my posters. So I had two overlapping each other and it looked terrible but it was the best I could do. So it's actually interesting to jump ahead a moment. I have a 15-year-old daughter. And one of my big worries about money is that she has so much because my husband and I succeeded in our careers earlier in her development than my parents did. So she isn't having to scrap and scrabble as much. And I actually often wonder whether money will be more of a problem for her later because she didn't have to work so hard for it as I did. Going back to the childhood, my parents encouraged us to be frugal. I remember they went through a phase where they were watching their pennies and they would actually carry around cash in this wallet that had like 10 different pockets. And there was the entertainment pocket and the grocery pocket and the gasoline pocket and so forth. And they really tried to live according to those pockets. So that was one of the things I saw growing up. As I got older, they started talking to me about investing in stocks and things. And I remember my dad pulling out the stock page from the newspaper and showing me all of these different valuations on stocks. And I was completely bored and didn't get it at all. <laughs> it was not until many years later when I met my husband that I learned this stuff from him. I was a television reporter for many years. And early in my career, when I was 25 years old, they sent me out to do some story about a dip in the stock market. And I didn't even know what questions to ask the people I was interviewing. I had at first been a general assignment reporter covering fires and parades and murders and all the usual stuff. But eventually one of my bosses asked me to be one of the station's consumer reporters. And suddenly people were looking to me for money advice, not investing advice, but more advice about how to be wise with your pocketbook and things. Honestly, as far as turning points go, that's when I felt that I needed to do a better job with my own money. I started this consumer reporter job and I had credit card debt, not a ton like some people do, thank goodness, just a couple thousand dollars, but it was quite a task to whittle that down because another career where you don't make a lot of money at first, believe it or not, is as a TV reporter. So it's been a journey. What a great journey for your folks being frugal. As a young person, were you also quite frugal? What did you take out of this learning and how do you bring it forward to today? I was frugal until college when there was this little card table in front of the student union where some credit card company was offering students credit cards with no proof of income. That's when the credit card debt happened. And the laws have changed since then, fortunately, and it's not so easy for them to offer students credit cards. That was when I went a little crazy. Like I said, I know some people struggle far more. I have friends who've had 20, 50, $90,000 worth of credit card debt, and mine was only ever a couple thousand. 
I was pretty frugal up until then. And then I did have this little phase of, I want this, I want that, and going a little bit crazy. And then actually, I met this cute guy who was a certified financial planner, and he put me on a payment plan and said, every dollar that comes in, no more buying home decor for your apartment, no more clothes, no more going out to eat, although I'll take you out to eat, he said to me suavely. The other thing he encouraged me to do was send money to the credit card company when I didn't have a bill due. So if I had money in my hand, it tended to become shoes on my feet. And instead, I was to write a check and send in that money whenever I had extra. How'd that feel doing that? It was a tremendous relief to get those cards paid off. And during the process, I have to say it was liberating. I had far fewer errands to run because I couldn't buy things. I had a lot more time to read, to hang out with my new boyfriend, etc. And that is now my husband. Even to this day, when we consider ourselves comfortable and successful, from time to time, we will still go on a spending freeze, where for three months or six months, we will say no discretionary spending, none. And frankly, it's mostly <laughs> me. He doesn't spend much money anyway on clothing for himself or new knickknacks for the house, but I have a weakness for those things. And it still has the same effect where we go on this spending freeze and we find more time to connect with each other. It really is amazing how much money you can save if you just cut out all the discretionary spending. How do you know when it's time to freeze and to change things up a bit? Usually these spending freezes at this stage of our lives happen after some big expense binge. For example, not at the very beginning, but somewhat into the COVID crisis, like many people, we were tired of our house and started wanting to remodel. First, it was the main bathroom, and then we did the guest bathroom, and then my daughter's. That was a lot of output. We did a spending freeze after that. So that's usually when it happens. The other thing we've done as a married couple that I recommend to everyone, in addition to spending freezes, is setting an amount that one or the other of you is allowed to spend without the other's permission, but anything over X amount, and I say X because as we've gotten older, the amount has shifted. But I think when we were newlyweds, for example, neither of us was to spend more than $300 without the other's permission. It just slows you down and makes you think, do I really need this? We're going to have to talk it through. Maybe this impulse buy is not appropriate. But it does give you some freedom to do some spending on your own. Over the years, we've raised the amount. Now it's a thousand bucks and it's taken a while to get to that. But it has been really helpful. And I think, you know, one of the top issues in relationships is money as far as arguments and conflict. And for us, this has been one way of mitigating that. What a great catalyst to have money conversations, which is obviously what we're advocating on money tales because we think it's really important. Would you share with us a little bit about these experiences outside the dollar amounts? How did you and your husband figure out this navigation of these money conversations and any insights you learned along the way? I mentioned he's the money maker and I'm the money saver. And that's because of our professions, since he's an investment advisor and a certified financial planner, and he's the one who invests in stocks and mutual funds and other things. He focuses on that, but I do ask that he check in with me if he's doing anything really wild. I'm the one who figures out how to hang on to what we've got. 
I actually wrote a book a few years ago that came from my own belief. I don't like to fuss over every coffee, every lunch with a friend. Those are the small potatoes savings. Even though there's a famous author with a famous book about skipping your latte, I don't agree with that. To me, those are those moments where you get to be with a friend or go to dinner with your family. Of course, if you're in dire straits, sure. I believe in saving money on big things, $1,000 more. And the nice thing about this is you can focus on saving money less often, but get a better return. So I have done things, for example, like shop around for car insurance. Every friend I have ever recommended this to, and it was in my book too, has always been able to save at least $1,000 a year by shopping around for car insurance, getting the same level of coverage with another reputable company, but shopping around. One that's a bit more creative, contesting your property tax assessment. It's a little more complicated than fighting a speeding ticket, but man, the returns are fantastic, especially depending where you live and how high the property taxes are there. Basically, you're arguing that your house isn't as valuable as they claim. There's a method to it. You aren't lying. You get the record from your county, typically, or city of why they say your house is worth what it is, and you find errors or you find other ways of interpreting the data. There are all sorts of things like that that I focus on. And if you really want to go crazy, you can do things like extreme couponing, where you use coupons on things that are on sale and end up getting groceries and other personal care items and household items almost for free. I haven't focused on that. I'm too busy. Even though if you're great at that, those strategies can bring in the big savings I'm talking about. But I really like the one and done type savings things, such as the property tax that's how it breaks down in our house, making money, saving money. And there are times, depending on the economic cycle, there was a phase there with the 08 financial crisis, for example, where I was joking that saving money was the new making money because it was harder to make money maybe in, in investments, but it was a great time to try to hang on to the money you already had. I love this. Focus on the really big things and try to save there. I too agree with you on the coffee savings and some of the little stuff. Sure, it can compound over time, but if it's taking time and enjoyment away from your life, that's not always a great give up. Yeah. And actually, one of the categories that a lot of people don't think of as an expense is interest on loans. The top five things we spend money on are our houses and everything to do with them, maintaining them, our cars, then our credit. So interest on loans, whether it's your mortgage or your credit card or your car loan, and then groceries and healthcare. Aggressively looking for opportunities to refinance your house has been a great one. Many people don't even realize you can refinance a car loan. And credit unions in particular love helping people with that. I think they take a secret joy in snatching some of that business from the big banks. And since they're not for profit, sometimes they can beat the rates. There are all sorts of neat strategies if you focus on the big stuff. You said when you were focused as a journalist on consumer issues, you were looking at ways to avoid scams and ripoffs. And I'm wondering if there's some insights there that you want to share with our listeners. That's another area of concern for people. We had a guest on Money Tales who shared a story of being ripped off by a contractor and just how mortifying that was to her and her husband, if you have some tips in that area. First of all, there's a difference between a scam and a ripoff, and a lot of people don't see it that way, but I think it's important. A ripoff is a legitimate product or service you buy, but you're charged too much. And I'm not sure exactly what your other guest situation was with the contractor, but often that's the case with those scenarios. 
a scam is literally just taking your money for nothing. And the problem with those is that they're constantly changing. So it's impossible to always know what the latest scams are. I recently did a job for a bank that wanted to warn people about a terrible scam going around right now. That's just an example of how clever these evil genius scammers are, where they would send people via text what looked like a fraud alert that you really would get from your bank, alerting you to what looked like a fraudulent charge. And when the person would say, no, no, that wasn't my charge. And of course it wasn't because the scammers made it up. Then they would call the intended victim and use that as their entree to talk you into giving them your account number or sending money to a third party or sending money to yourself, which seems harmless, right? Only they had already taken over your account. My point isn't about this particular scam, but just how clever they are and how they're always evolving and even using things that should make us feel safe against us. But I do have an overarching tip that helps with every single scam. I made this up, but I think it's good stuff. Be the hunter, not the hunted. In other words, do business with companies you seek out, you research, never do business or send money to anyone who comes after you. That pretty much slays this dragon every single time. Because if you think about it, the scammers are coming after you with their phone call or their text, and they want you to click the link, et cetera, et cetera. But if you hang up and look up your bank's number yourself and call in, you find out it's a scam. And I love how you titled it. It's an easy shortcut mentally. The simple tips are always the best. Nobody wants to memorize every scam that's ever out there. And then the ripoffs, it is way easier to prevent a ripoff ahead of time than after the fact. That's where you just have to do your homework. Similar to the idea that my husband and I can spend a certain amount of money without notifying each other. If I'm going to spend more than 500 bucks with a company, let's say, I do the research. And these days, it's so very, very easy. I just Google the name of the company and scam or the name of the company and complaint or the name of the business owner and scam or the name of the business owner and complaint. 99% of the time, it is all right there for you to see. You used to have to call the Better Business Bureau or call your county or state consumer protection office to get this information. And now it's so easy. And if people would just slow down and take this simple step, they could avoid a lot of ripoffs. There's times where I'm very frustrated by the transparency in our lives today. You just pointed out what's really valuable as well, that we can get this information really easily. So thank you for that. Would you tell us more about being a parent and teaching financial skills to your daughter? I'm trying. That is hard. I am sitting in my teenage daughter's room right now because it was the quietest place I could find for my interview with you. And I'm surrounded by the stuff that she covets and wants. I do believe that kids should mostly have the things they want if they earn it. That either means directly earning something, earning the money to buy it themselves, or earning it through some good deed or action, whatever that might be in your family, whether that's good grades or being helpful at home. As I mentioned earlier, the thing that worries me is when these kids grow up with a nice life provided by their parents. And there are many a time when my daughter doesn't seem to appreciate how much something costs. She's had an older model iPhone 7 for three years now. She has been begging me for whatever the latest is. And I don't even know. I'm such a tech dunce. She wants the latest one, the one with the fancier camera and three little cameras poking out and whatever. 
I keep saying, I'm sorry. No, it is my duty as a parent to give you a phone that allows you to communicate and be safe and reach us in an emergency. It's not even, frankly, our duty to give you an iPhone or any phone with video capability. A flip phone would work just fine to text us or call us when you have a problem. But we have provided a basic level iPhone that we bought used, refurbished. If you want the fancier one, fine. Earn the money and buy it. She doesn't want it badly enough to spend her own money. She only wants to spend my money. So she doesn't have it. That's one I'm standing my ground on. We also have some other rules. She wants certain brand name athletic gear. The rule is I will give you enough money that you could buy the more generic pair of leggings. And if you want that certain brand that all the teenage girls must have, you can make up the difference. Does she do that? Interestingly, she usually does without or waits for a gift giving occasion where she can ask for something like the certain leggings from us or from the grandparents or the aunt and uncle. Consequently, she has far fewer than maybe some of her friends do. That's how she's chosen to do it. I would like her to get a job and earn them directly, but she's just turned 15 three days ago. So we'll see. What formed your thoughts about how kids should be able to spend money in what you were saying before about working for the things that they want? Was it your own experience or was it something else? I have something very specific for you on that. When I was about nine years old, both my parents worked as architects and I had a babysitter who I met at my house every day after elementary school. I walked home and she met me there and we were together until my parents got home. We were driving along once in her ratty old Datsun and she was a single woman who didn't have kids yet, but she was very kid oriented. And she told me that that was her philosophy. Kids should mostly be able to get what they want if they earn it. It stuck out to me and I thought about it for years and decided I agree. It's as simple as that. It's neat when we learn and pick up on such kernels of wisdom. It resonated with you and you bring it to your life. Right. From age nine to age, I'm not going to say. Neither am I. Glad we're not going there. (laughs) I think it's really powerful. We, as a society, we're struggling with this for kids in more affluent homes things are in our faces and in their faces and prioritizing these things and getting some sort of perspective on them is a challenge. I like how you're doing that with your daughter. Well, we are not perfect by any means and it is a struggle. She goes to a fancy private school here in Washington, D.C. and some of these kids have everything. That's their family's choice and business and that's fine, but I get a lot of, but so-and-so does such and such or so-and-so has this and that. And I say, I'm sorry, but you comparing yourself to others is never an argument that I'm going to buy. Do you spend a lot of time talking with the parents of your daughter's friends about their money views or even your own friends about different values around money? Not so much parents of my daughter's friends who are at her school. There's a little bit of that. My friends that I've known since we were young and single, or some of my friends I'm still in touch with from college, more so. I think maybe that has to do with all having started out as poor college students or poor 20-somethings working and made something of ourselves. We feel a shared history that allows us to talk about money more. I do occasionally ask somebody who's very successful about their work ethic because I'm curious whether wealthy people I know 
sometimes the parents of my daughter's friends at the school. I'm curious whether they were raised with money or whether they're self-made or what. And if there's an opening to ask it in a respectful way, I am a journalist, so I'm a bit nosy. I will. And I'm always interested in the answer. Can be awkward. And I have to tell you right now, I'm in a strange position. I'm actually co-chairing the big benefit auction at my daughter's school. So we're having to talk about so-and-so can probably contribute at a larger amount because they have a lot of money and -and so-and-so has a vacation home. Do you think they would let us auction off a week at their vacation home for the benefit of the school? It's awkward, but it's for a good cause. So we're pushing through some of that. Would you tell us more about how you're doing that? It's such a great example of money conversations that come up. I just love diving into the awkwardness and how can we make it less awkward? What we've decided as auction co-chairs, and actually my husband and I are doing this together, God help me, and then we have one other co-chair, thank goodness. Our mantra is it doesn't hurt to ask, but we always give them an out. For example, I have this line that I've been writing in every single email ask to other parents where I say, don't worry, exclamation point, I will graciously take no for an answer. However, I will even more gratefully take yes for an answer. It seems to do okay. I am trying to give them an out and make them very comfortable saying no. And some people are saying no. There are folks who are saying, yes, we have a vacation home. It is not set up for rentals or for lending out. And we live there all summer or whatever. And I write them back and I say, no worries whatsoever. Thanks so much for replying. Luckily for me, I'm not the one asking the most brazen questions. Our other co-chair, not my husband or myself, is the one who asks people to be patrons of our spring benefit. That means that you're giving more than the ticket price to just attend. You're giving at least a thousand bucks instead of 150 for one person to attend. In her case, she has to have some intel on who has been pretty generous in the past. And there are all these conversations about just be careful not to ask the same person for too many different things. So there's a lot of thought that goes into it and being very careful to be respectful of people's wealth. Maybe they have some huge philanthropy that they're involved in outside of the school and that's where their dollars go. Who are we to say what they should prioritize? I love this. Be respectful, given out. Don't judge because there might be a lot going on behind the scenes that you just don't know about. Yeah. In fact, I asked one mom who I knew because my daughter and hers had gone to elementary school together. And I happen to know that she's wealthy. She wrote back to me and said, actually, I'm not sure if you knew, but my husband and I are getting divorced right now. So the asset division is right in the middle and it's awkward and tricky for us right now. So I just can't commit to anything. I wrote back and said, gosh, I'm sorry you're going through this, even if the divorce is a good thing for you, because it's tumultuous regardless. And of course, do what you need to do. And we just hope to see you at some fun parties out in the world. You are now an author, or you've been an author for some time. You're a public speaker. You go out and talk to companies. You coach. In that role, you've got to advocate and negotiate and set prices all by yourself. No one says, here's the price I recommend. How do you go about doing that? That's a great question. I am actually in a women's career group and we all ask each other this all the time. How much should I charge for this gig? For whatever reason, I've turned out to be the one they look to for encouragement to ask for more money. Not sure how this happened because even I sometimes feel awkward about it. Here's the key. And I think this is particularly valuable to women, but perhaps I'm just being sexist. I suggest, especially if you're working in a consulting role or a speaking role, always quote by the project. 
perhaps you do back into this project fee by figuring out how many hours you would spend. But if you quote hours, then they're just valuing you as if you work at a coffee shop. If you quote by the project, there are these intangibles that come into play, your knowledge, your connections, your reputation, things that can't be assigned in hours. Even though high class attorneys do charge by the hour for the most part, in many other professions, it makes a lot of sense to quote by the project. I had a project a few years ago that's an easy one to describe. I was helping an electric cooperative with some communications problems they were having with a local newspaper in their little town and to do some things to fix up their terrible website and to coach their executives on how to deal with the media. I priced it out in chunks. This project will be $7,000. This littler thing will be $3,000. And the total package came to maybe $25,000. And I knew how much time it was going to take me to do the work, but they didn't. And they didn't need to. Sure enough, they said yes to my entire proposal. It's great advice. I appreciated you encouraging us to ask for more, ask fair. I also love that you're in a women's career group. We can all use support from each other. A lot of context is built there as well. Just last night, one of the women in the career group emailed me with this exact question. She was being asked to provide media training, how to speak to the media and be on TV and such for an executive who was already pretty good at it. And she had been told by her contact that there was plenty of money to pay for this, but they wouldn't give her a budget because we always try to ask. The spiel is, it's important to me that I provide some options that would work for you. Can you give me a feel for your budget? They just wouldn't give her a feel. So we did a little Googling around about how much that sort of thing is worth. My advice was quote them a high amount, the highest that we found online, but state that if the scope of work is different from what you're proposing, of course, you can talk about a different price. Not, I will talk about lowering my fee. I will talk about lowering the amount of services I provide to you, which in turn would lower my fee. I thought that was pretty good advice that just came to me from experience. It's almost like the out you're giving the donors you're reaching out to. Exactly. So she's not shutting off the conversation when she says, I want $20,000 to do this for you. And they say, oh, well, that's too much. Forget it. She's giving them a way to come back to her and say, actually, we were thinking more like 10. She can say, for that, I can do this shorter list of services. Keep that conversation going. This friend needs to do a better job of knowing her value. That's a concept that comes up all the time on Money Tales. It leads us to the question of how does one know their value? You mentioned some of the things earlier about knowledge and experience and reputation, but how do you put a value on that? I do think it's hard in this career group. Most are former journalists. So we sort of know what the day rates are for freelancers. And a lot of these folks are freelancers. So I try to help them think of, you have to make a certain minimum per day. For several of us, for example, that's a thousand a day. For other folks, it's more. There are some that are a little bit less, but that's one way of thinking of it because it's possible to figure out what your annual income would be and how that compares to back when you were a salaried employee. And yet you ought to be making more because you're not giving up part of it to the company. But I do think it's a challenge. I do like the advice of putting the scope together, putting a range out there and then getting feedback around that and then making adjustments from there. I expect that once you do that several times, you start getting a good sense of what the value is and how it's perceived by whatever your marketplace is for your services. 
you said the perfect thing that I should have said, which is it's partly what the market will bear, of course. So that's why I was trying to give this one friend the idea, throw out a high number. You'll find out if it's too high, but don't say you're lowering your price for the same amount of work. That's the key. You'll lower the amount of work to fit the price. And don't lowball from the beginning because it's much harder to go higher than it is to take your approach of going lower and changing the scope. And whenever possible, whether you're negotiating a job or to buy a house or a car or whatever, try like heck to get the other person to name the first number. I once did an undercover investigation for Good Morning America with hidden cameras and the whole deal where we went with an expert negotiator to buy a used car. This was not some sting where we were trying to catch them doing anything bad. We were using hidden cameras just to document the negotiation process. One of the key steps was trying to get the other party to name the first number. Because if you name a number that's too high, as you say, there's no going down. You can only go up from there. Are there techniques that you learned from that project or others to try to get the other party to put the number out there first? Two others that I can still recall off the top of my head. One is if you're particularly negotiating for a car and you're there in person, you have got to walk off the lot at some point. You cannot go there that day and buy the car that day. You must leave and let them know you're going across town to shop around some more so they know they have competition. I'm negotiating a catering contract for our big spring benefit thing right now, and I've made sure they know I'm getting five bids, so they'll give me their best price. The other tip was, and this is particularly apropos for your podcast and the awkwardness of talking about money, one of the strategies in that big hidden camera investigation was state your offer and shut up. Let there be that awkward silence. Do not fill it with a bunch of rationale. Well, it's just that I think that maybe that's not the color I had in mind, whatever, garbage. State your next price and shut up and let them fill the awkward silence. What we learned is very often they would fill it with concessions. And there's one more. I remembered another, psychology, to show that you're mentally tougher than whoever you're negotiating with. Make your increment smaller than theirs. You've offered 10,000 for the car. They say no, 15. You have to make your increment that you go up smaller than the ones that they come down. Then they go down to 13, but you only go up to 11. So they've come down two, but you've gone up 1,000. Shows who's in control. Ideally. If nothing else, it's fun. (laughs) There has been so much wisdom, but I'm going to push for more. Is there any other money wisdom that you want to share with our listeners that we haven't discussed today? I do think that even people who aren't particularly financially sophisticated or particularly wealthy should get some professional advice because it can help you take the emotion out of things. It can help you in your relationship. Even something as basic as where to put your money in your 401k. That's one major way Americans who aren't particularly fancy do end up saving for retirement is in the company-sponsored 401k. But where do you put it? I was putting mine into my company stock. And my then boyfriend, now husband pointed out, your company matches it in company stock. So put your allocation somewhere else to diversify. That seems pretty darn obvious when he points it out, but I didn't know. I had no clue. So professional advice that can be about investing your money, saving your money. I think a lot of people need help figuring out how to deal with their debt and they need that tough love conversation to say, you can't afford the stuff you're buying. Also tax advice. A lot of people leave money on the table I'm not talking about cheating on your taxes or anything like that. I'm just talking about taking the various deductions and things that are due to you. 
Elizabeth, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? There's a safe bet that it'll be with my daughter because Christmas is coming. (laughs) I will give her some lovely gifts and she'll want even more. That'll be the next one. A big one with the teenagers is I just asked her, if that was your money, would it be worth it to you? Would that skirt be worth 50 bucks to you or is it just $20 cute? Some of the conversations in this house are pretty simple about money. And then some of them are a little more highfalutin when my husband and I have a glass of wine and start talking about some of the ideas he has for investing and such. I love that. Responding to a question with a question. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth, this has been such a wonderful, enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your money experiences and wisdom with us on Money Tales. We really appreciate it. You're so very welcome. It sure flew by. And I hope there was something in here that will be useful to somebody else. There's so much. Guaranteed. Thanks again, Elizabeth. You bet. Cammie, we're at the point where we get to talk about our takeaways from this conversation. What are some of your takeaways from what we just talked about with Elizabeth? One of the things that stood out with me, because I trip over this personally, she talked about looking for ways to save money on the big expenses, things that really move the needle. I like some of the examples she gave, one being contest your property tax assessment, which sounds like something you can't do, but you can, or you should look into it. The other one that stuck out with me was shop around for car insurance. Why personally this pops up is I am someone who will spend time returning the $10 from the pharmacy, something I purchased, and won't spend the time on refinancing my mortgage. Those little 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there would add up to the time I could spend on something that really moves the needle, like refinancing my mortgage. What about you, Sandy? I'm so excited that you mentioned that. I will be your accountability partner if there's a mortgage to be refinanced. That was a really great point that Elizabeth made about saving money on the big things. And she gave some other examples too. To add to the example she gave, I was thinking through what are other big purchases that people can save on? Certainly buying cars. Anytime you're working with vendors who are doing custom work for you, it's always good to shop around to get other quotes, to harness your inner Ned Montana court and negotiate where you can. I also like what Elizabeth shared about what she and her husband do after they've gone through periods where they have spent a lot of money. She shared about having a spending freeze. Sit back, take account of what's going on. I thought that was really cool. And that brings up something else that Elizabeth mentioned that I really liked. She was talking about how when she was a young adult, she was paying off her credit card debt. And that when she was focused on paying off her credit cards, that freed up time for her to do other things. She could read more books. She could enjoy life when she wasn't spending. I thought that was a really insightful acknowledgement. What was one of your bigger takeaways you want to highlight for our listeners? I appreciated that Elizabeth defined scams and ripoffs. And when she was doing that, I realized my reference to our earlier conversation with another Money Tales guest, Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, that I had referred to was incorrect. Kathleen and her husband were scammed by their contractor, not ripped off. Her definition of those terms was really important. And I really liked the way she labeled the approach of avoiding scams, which is be the hunter, not the hunted. It's important because so many of us fall prey to different scams, thinking that the email we just received really is from the IRS, wanting some information about a payment we didn't make. It is really frightening, but have that lens, be the hunter. 
Elizabeth's got a wealth of experience and knowledge to share, and I found myself taking a lot of notes and getting a lot out of it. But one other that I really appreciated her talking about was valuing yourself and the work you do, specifically thinking about as you're coming into being an entrepreneur or a consultant, how do you put value on your services? I liked her talking about being part of a women's career group. She's not trying to sit by herself to figure this out. She's going out to others who can add a lens and perspective and push her. And it sounds like she actually pushes them. The other tip was quote it by project. It's not about your dollars and your hours. It's about what you're accomplishing. I appreciate her highlighting that. It's a good perspective. It's not just about how much time it takes you to do the work. It's about all the experience you have, all the insights you have from that experience, your reputation, your network. There's so much value that we bring to the work we do that goes beyond the hours involved. I too liked Elizabeth pointing that out and sharing that perspective. Thank you, Elizabeth, for joining us on Money Tales and sharing so much of yourself and your stories. We want to also encourage our listeners, please share your stories with us by emailing us at podcasts at Asperient.com. And if you like this episode, be sure to share it too. We'll see you next time on Money Tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.